Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Faithful and True. But please turn to Revelation chapter 19, and the title of the message today is Faithful and True. And so Revelation chapter 19, faithful and true. How's everybody doing today? Good. Don't forget, Trunk or Treat is coming soon. What a great way to invite unchurched friends and family to come into an environment that honors Christ. And so, and by the way, what a great alternative to the world's celebration of Halloween. So I wanna encourage you guys to jump on board and use that as an evangelistic tool to get people to come to Calvary and then hopefully they'll come to a Sunday morning service as well. If you found Revelation 19, just say amen so I know you're there. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we're grateful for your word. We know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And so we're here in the second half of the service to receive that teaching from your word. And Lord, I know that your spirit is here. We want your spirit to have free reign in our hearts and in our lives. We know there's people, Father, here that need to surrender to your lordship, your leadership in their lives. And I pray that today would be that day Others, Father, maybe need a correction of something that's going on in their lives. That's what the word is for. Others, Lord, just need to be encouraged. They've had a difficult time and they need you, a touch from you, that everything's gonna be okay. Whatever the need is, Spirit of God, we're glad that you're omnipresent and you're omniscient and you're able to meet those needs. We want to point to Jesus. Jesus, we want this church to be all about you, centered on you, looking to you. And we're glad that as we read your word, that in the end, you win. And all who are aligned with you win as well. And so as we study that today, Father, help us not to be distracted, but help us to be hopeful in what it is you plan on doing in the future, which cannot be changed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, all right, so what is going to cause the end of the world? What's gonna cause history as we know it to end? Of course, there's lots of opinions out there, um, and, and it starts with you know, the opinion that nuclear warfare, that's probably one of the biggest opinions, that mankind is gonna destroy itself through some type of nuclear warfare. Other people believe that there's gonna be some type of cosmic collision, an asteroid or a, or a comet is gonna come and it's gonna strike the earth and we're not gonna be able to recover from that. Others believe global warming is gonna be the cause of our de uh, demise, while other people say, no, it's gonna be a solar storm. You know, ejections, uh, projections from, from the sun that are gonna wipe out the earth. Or other people say it's gonna be a super volcano that's gonna wipe out humanity. My favorite opinion is that aliens are gonna come. 
They're gonna take over the earth. You know, take me to your leader. Now, there's one thing certain about all these opinions. They're only opinions. Aren't you glad in a world that's filled with conjecture, we have the sure word of God? Right, again, I said it in my prayer, I'll quote it again. Paul, writing to his protege, Timothy, said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In the Greek, it's literally all scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for a proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so in a, in a world that's filled with opinions, we got God's word, and God's word can be trusted. What does God's word have to say about how the world will end? What does the scripture say about how history as we know it is gonna end? The Bible says, and we're gonna study it today, that the end of the world will come when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. That's what chapter 19 is all about. I'm excited about getting into it with you, so we're gonna go ahead and jump into verse one. Please follow along verse by verse. It says, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, okay? The word hallelujah in Hebrew is made up of two words, hallel, which means praise, yah, which refers to Yahweh, the only true God. Praise Yahweh, that's hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse two, for his judgments, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bold judgments, devastating the earth throughout the seven years, we're now at the end of that period, that tribulation period. For his judgments are true and just, and then more specifically, for he has judged the great prostitute, we saw her in chapter 17, who corrupted the earth with her immorality, that's spiritual immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they, that's this uh, great multitude in heaven, cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And so one day, a great multitude in heaven is gonna shout, praise the Lord. Right, and why are they gonna do that? Because God's judgments that are gonna come upon this planet will be true and they will be righteous. You say, what judgments? The judgments that we've been studying now for several weeks. And so in chapter 17, we saw the judgment of the one world global religion that's coming to this planet in the future. Of course, it's gonna be an ecumenical merger of all faiths that have a lot of things in common, but the main thing they have in common is that they reject that Jesus is the Messiah and he is the one way to God. And so that religious system is gonna form across the whole world. She commits spiritual immorality, that's why she's called a great prostitute. We believe she will be judged at the midpoint of the tribulation period. We saw that in chapter 17. Heaven is gonna rejoice over that judgment. They're gonna say hallelujah to that. In chapter 18, we saw the judgment of the global government. And so that political slash economic system that's gonna come, um, the revived Roman Empire, the 10 nations that are gonna give their power to the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet is gonna be doing these supernatural wonders and cause millions of people to get the mark of the beast in their hands and their forehead. Listen, all that's coming down 
And heaven's response is going to be, hallelujah, praise the Lord. God's judgments are true and righteous. Today in chapter 19, we're going to see the return of the king of kings. And what, why is Jesus coming back? He's coming back to take back what is rightfully his, which Adam lost, and that's planet Earth. He's coming back to reverse the curse. He's coming back to exchange a kingdom of, of darkness for a kingdom of light. What's heaven's response to that? Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then I'm excited two weeks from today, we're gonna see the establishment of Christ's kingdom, which is gonna last for 1,000 literal years, and heaven's response to that will also be hallelujah and praise the Lord. And so there's a party going on in heaven right now, and the party continues now in verse four. Check it out. And the 24 elders, if you remember them from chapter four, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And so if you remember from chapter four, we had, had the 24 elders. I believe most likely they represent the church, which is in heaven at this time. And so the 24 elders, along with the four living creatures, that's the four cherubim. Cherubim is a special um, ruling order of angelic beings. And so the 24 elders and the four cherubim, they fall down before the Father on the throne. And what, what do they say? They say, amen, hallelujah. What does that mean? That means that they are in agreement with the great multitude that's shouting that God's judgments, the trumpet judgments, seal judgments, bold, bold judgments, those judgments are true and they're righteous. And now in verse six, the party gets even louder. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of, of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah. There it is again. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what you need to know. Um, the word hallelujah, you might as well get used to it. We're gonna be saying that a lot in heaven. And then two, worship in heaven is not gonna be some kind of quiet, shh, somber service. Worship in heaven is gonna be loud and it's gonna be exuberant. Might as well get ready now before we get up there. Otherwise, you're gonna be like a fish out of water. You're like, what's going on? Why are these people so loud? They're loud because the Lord God omnipotent reigns and they're seeing that happen not just in heaven but now on earth. And so mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. By the way, rejoice and exult no matter what you're going through. Don't be a thermometer, be a thermostat. Don't be a thermometer where everybody around you and your environment dictates whether you're hot or cold, happy or sad. Be a thermostat. You decide how, well, what the temperature's gonna be. You decide what the environment's gonna be. Not based on your feelings, but based on the fact that the Lord God omnipotent reigns. See, that's the temperature in heaven. And so, hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns, seven, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Why? 
Because finally, I'm not, I, don't, I shouldn't add words to Revelation or I might get a bunch of plagues, so I'll just read it what it says very carefully here. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. I can't wait. And his bride has made herself ready. The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who's the bride? The church. The church. I'm fascinated by the parallels between biblical weddings and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Did you know that the ancient Jewish weddings that took place, that there was often three phases to those ancient Jewish weddings? There was the betrothal phase, and then there was the presentation of the bride to the groom, and that was followed at some point by the ceremony. So we'll start with the betrothal. Did you know that in biblical times, marriages were prearranged? That means if you got two dads and their friends and they got a couple teenagers, right? And the teenage boy is there and he's standing with the teenage girl and it looks like something may be going on that the father of the son can look at the father of the daughter and he can say, hey, you know, what do you think? My son, your daughter. And if the other guy, the father of the daughter says, I think it's a match made in heaven. Hey, before you know it, there's a betrothal contract that's signed between the dads. There's a dowry that is exchanged well before the presentation and the ceremony. And that betrothal contract was so serious, the only way to break it was to get a certificate of divorce. My point here is that all of this was pre-arranged. Did you know that our relationship with Jesus Christ was pre-arranged? Hey, check it out. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus that he, that's the father, chose us, that's us, the bride, if you know Jesus, in him, that's Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. Before God created planet Earth and the stars before he created the material universe, he knew your name. And he chose you, Peter sheds a little bit of light on this, 1 Peter 1, 2, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know how big our God is? He is so mighty and so vast and so amazing. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing. He is omnipresent, he's everywhere at the same time, he's eternal, he's sovereign, and he has foreknowledge. What does that mean? That our God is so great, he doesn't dwell in time. No, he dwells outside of time, in eternity. And our big God can look down on the timeline of human history, and he can see the beginning from the end. All the free choices that we make in the future, God already sees it. It's locked in, it's foreordained. And according to his perfect, omniscient foreknowledge, God has chosen a bride for his son. And if you know Jesus this morning, you're that bride. It's all prearranged. It's all before the foundation of the world. And so right now, we're in the betrothal period. Now going back to the ancient Jewish weddings, during the betrothal period, what would that young teenage boy do? He knows that his dad signed a contract, and so what he's gonna do is he's gonna add a room 
to his father's house. And so that's what he starts to do in preparation to have a place for him to bring his bride in the future. Do you guys know what Jesus Christ is doing right now in heaven during our betrothal period with the bridegroom Jesus? Let me just quote his words in John 14, one through three. Are you ready for this? This is Jesus talking to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I, Jesus the bridegroom, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, say I will, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Jesus the carpenter, he likes to build stuff. He knows your likes and he knows your dislikes. And what is he doing? He's right now at the Father's house and he's building a room, a dwelling place for his bride. He's doing that for you. And that leads us to the second phase and that's the presentation stage. Back to the ancient Jewish wedding. And so what happened is that there was an appointed night of when the bride knew the groom was coming. And so she'd get all excited, she'd get her friends, her girlfriends, and they'd get together, and what are they doing? They're waiting for the groom and his friends to show up that night. They knew the general time that he would come, but they didn't always know the exact time, because how many of you guys know that sometimes the groom can be delayed? Okay, and so they're there and they're waiting. Better stay awake, better have some oil in your lamps. Matthew 25, parable of the 10 virgins. And the, 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 the bride is waiting with her girlfriends for the groom and his men to arrive. And when he finally comes, what does he do? He takes the bride to himself. And he and his friends and her and her friends light their torches. Better have oil in those tor torches. And what do they do? They march throughout the night in a parade, celebration, party time. And the last place they end up is the father's house where the groom added on a room for him and his bride and they all would celebrate based upon how much money dad had a week or longer. Those people knew how to party in biblical days. Okay, right now we are in the betrothal period. We're waiting for the groom, Jesus Christ, to come and whisk us away. We know the general time. We don't know the exact time, but here's what we know. He will come for his bride. He promised it. It's called the rapture of the church. And one day, what is he gonna do? Just what he said in John 14, one through three, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's coming, he's gonna take us back to the Father's house, and we're gonna have a huge celebration, I personally believe, for one week. Not a week of days, a week of years. We're up there having a party with the bridegroom Jesus, while the earth is receiving the wrath of God during the seven year tribulation period. Betrothal in eternity past, presentation at the rapture of the church, and sometime after that presentation, there will be a wedding ceremony. Uh, John MacArthur says this about this passage. 
betrothed in eternity past, presented in the Father's house since the rapture, the church is now ready for the wedding ceremony to begin. It will coincide with the start of the millennial kingdom, that's chapter 20, and stretch throughout that 1,000 year period. What a celebration it will be. But ladies and gentlemen, do you know what distinguishes the bride from other women besides the big smile on her face? It's her dress. It's her dress. Let's, let's read about the dress in verse eight. And so we're talking about end of verse seven. Let's keep it in context. We're talking about the bride who's made herself ready. Now verse eight, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the, what's the next two words? That's important. The fine linen, the dress, is symbolically the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, this is the fairy tale of God. Is that what it says? But see, that's what so many people in the world think. If they knew we were gathered together on a Sunday afternoon talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, oh, pfft. What a bunch of fairy tales. No, actually, the angel says to John, these are the true words of God. You can mark it down, you can underline it, you can highlight it. It absolutely will happen, whether we're ready or not. Now, what does the bride's dress represent? If you're taking notes, her wedding gown represents the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, please do not misinterpret verse eight. Okay, this is not saying that we're saved by our good works. It's not what it's saying at all. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're with me here, can you please say amen? amen. Because much of Christendom has gotten this wrong for the last 2,000 years. And I don't want you to get this wrong right here and right now. We don't perform good works to earn our salvation. We perform good works as a result of our salvation. When did we receive that salvation? When we said yes to the groom. When we, he gave the offer and we committed our lives to him. That's when we said yes, it was on earth and because we said yes on earth, we're gonna get to wear a beautiful dress made of fine linen, bright and pure up in heaven. Now I know for all the men in this room, wearing a dress doesn't really excite you. Okay, I hope it doesn't excite you, but anyway. So what does that mean? That means, guys, a robe, whatever we're gonna wear. This is symbolic language. But what you gotta understand, men and women, is that what we're wearing in heaven is made of fine linen, bright and pure, and it is the righteous deeds of the saints. It represents the good works that we did in heaven. And so once again, much of Christendom has gotten this wrong for 2,000 years. I don't want you to get it wrong, so let's look at God's word. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through works. Is that what it says? For by grace... You have been saved through faith. This is why you always hear me every week, salvation's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right there. 
And this is not your own doing. Your salvation is not your own doing. It is a what? Gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that nobody may boast. Nobody's gonna go to heaven and say, hey, look at me. I got up here because I pulled myself up on my bootstraps and I did all those good works and so aren't you glad I'm here? Everybody clap for me. No. So we're not saved by our works. So what role do works play? Very next verse. By the way, lots of evangelicals always forget verse 10. Okay, so let's include God's word. For we, the church, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, what's the next three words? For good works. Not by good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. It's a result of our salvation. You say, Pastor, how do I know if I'm saved? Here's how, there'll be evidence. Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. If you're really saved, verse 10, you're gonna be walking in the works that God prepared for you before he created the world. And ladies and gentlemen, as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, here's what's gonna happen. As you find out what his will is for your life, and you start to walk in those works, your life will begin to stand out. How do you know the difference between the bride and all the other girls at the wedding reception? The bride's got the white dress. She stands out. How's the world supposed to know that we're really Christians? They can't see our justification by faith alone in their hearts. How do they know? By the works that God has prepared before the creation of the world that we're walking in. And that's like a white dress. Okay, so everybody, say yes to the dress. All right? You say, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. Don't be one of those men or women who said, I said the little prayer. I'm going to heaven. But there's a problem. Your life never changed. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, say a little prayer like a poem. Man, you've got fire insurance forever and ever. That's not the doctrine of salvation. Where do we come up with this stuff? You say, well, doesn't it say, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Listen. Whoever calls on the name of the who? What was his name? Yeah, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Jesus will be saved. He's Lord. You don't say a little prayer like a poem and think you got fire insurance. That is nowhere in the Bible. You have got to commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, Yes, we can clap for the truth. And when you do that, guess what? The Holy Spirit of God comes in and he begins to change you from the inside out. And now we're past justification, now we're into sanctification. Justification is, is I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Done deal, nothing can change that. Now I'm being sanctified. I am being saved from the power of sin. And as we walk in the Spirit, as we do the works that God had prepared for us before the foundation of the world, we begin to stand out like a bride with a beautiful white dress on her wedding day. I hope 
if you just said a little prayer, like a poem, but your life never changed, I hope you're listening to me right now because I don't want you to get to heaven and stand before Jesus and him say, I never knew you, depart from me into everlasting darkness. Walk the aisle and commit your life to the bridegroom. Now look at verse 10. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. So what is John doing in verse 10? He just got this amazing apocalyptic vision from an angel and he's falling down to worship an angel. Oh, John. And the angel said to him, you must not do that. In other words, get up. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship who? God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The angel told John, don't worship me, worship God. Now here's what's fascinating. Did you guys know that before his resurrection and after his resurrection, Jesus Christ accepted the worship of men and women? Throughout his whole life, whenever someone came to him and bowed down to Jesus and worshiped him, never once did he say like the angel, get up, don't worship me, worship God alone. He didn't do that. He accepted the worship 100% of the time. What does that mean? That means he's God. If you get that, please say amen. amen. He's God in the flesh, right? And so as C.S. Lewis said, the fact that he accepted, can you imagine if, if one of you walked up to me and fell on the ground and, oh, I worship you, Pastor Mike, and I put my hand on your head and said, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> I hope somebody would call my board and get me fired quick, right? How weird would that be? And so as C.S. Lewis said, Jesus accepted worship, that means one of three things. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's the Lord, and I, I say he's the Lord. The Bible says he's Lord. In fact, why don't we all say Jesus is Lord? Go ahead, man. All right, now, he's coming back. Look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written, a name written <laughs> that no one knows but himself. But Pastor Mike, what name is that? You don't understand, it just says <laughs> no one knows, okay, I don't know. Only Jesus knows that name. All right, so who's the rider on the white horse coming back in chapter 19? If you're taking notes, it's he is Jesus Christ. Now, it's very important that you differentiate between the rider of the white horse in chapter six and the rider of the white horse now in chapter 19. You guys remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse in chapter six? I think way back in March we probably preached that message. So the first horseman of the apocalypse came on a white horse, chapter six. He's different than now the guy on the white horse in chapter 19. The rider of the white horse in chapter six, what does he do? He comes with a bow but no arrows. What does that mean? If he had arrows, I've said this before, that means he's a man of war. He's not, he doesn't have any 
arrows. What does that mean? He comes initially as a man of peace. He deceives Israel through lies to get them to sign a peace treaty for seven years. That kicks off the tribulation period. Halfway through the tribulation period, this rider of the white horse in chapter six, he breaks the covenant. Why? He's a liar. And the Jews run for their lives because he's an anti-Semitic as well. He's completely different from this rider of the white horse in chapter 19. This rider, his name is Faithful and True. What does that mean? He would never lie to Israel. He would never lie to the church. In fact, he's never told a lie ever. Lying is not part of who he is as God. Everything, every, every Promise he's ever made will be fulfilled and every word that he has uttered is absolutely true. Why? Because he's called faithful and true. That's why. If you believe Jesus is faithful and true, man, right now, just let him know, I don't know, clap, shout, thank him. He'll never lie to you. He'll never deceive you. Many of you, you've been lied to. You've been deceived. You need to hang on to Jesus. He'll never lie to you. He'll never deceive you. Don't run to anyone else. Run to Jesus. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. What does that mean? That means that when Christ comes back, he's not coming back as a baby in a manger, he's coming back as a warrior on a mission. Okay, and so when Jesus Christ comes back, he's on a mission. What's his mission? His mission is to take back what Adam lost. Adam rebelled Conscientiously, he rebelled against God. What was the, subs uh, the, the, the result of that? A curse, a curse upon humanity and a curse upon the world, on the universe, the whole creation, groans waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Okay, and so when Adam rebelled against God, what happened? Everything underneath Adam's authority rebelled against him. The ground, the animals, his wife, they all rebelled against him, why? Because they were all under his authority. Adam blew it. The second Adam's coming back to fix it. He's coming back to redeem the world. He's coming back to redeem your body. He's gonna give us in chapter 21 and 22 a new heavens and a new earth. The problem is that he has enemies on the earth so that when he comes back, they don't want him to come back. So what will he be forced to do? He's forced to roll up his sleeves and engage in a bloody battle. That's why his robe is dipped in blood. Now, we don't have time to turn to Isaiah 63, one through four, but I would love for you to read that later today. Isaiah 63, one through four is the, par by the way, one of hundreds of parallel passages to Revelation 19 in the Old Testament. My goodness, the second coming is all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Isaiah 63, one through four, is talking about the Messiah coming back and his robe is crimsoned, it's red from blood. 
And this is, what's, this is why I'm bringing this up right now. It says that he comes from Edom. Where's Edom? Or what is Edom? Modern day Jordan is Edom. If you guys remember your map, right? Your um, Bible map, maybe in the back of your Bibles. So you got Israel here, Little Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, bigger Dead Sea, which by the way is evaporating slowly. And then over here, what, what big nation is this? It's Jordan. That's ancient Edom. Isaiah 63, one through four says that the Messiah with blood all over his robe is coming from Edom. What does that mean? Well, many scholars say this. In Revelation chapter 12, you remember the woman with the 12 stars? It's not Mary, it's Israel. 12 tribes of Israel. Do you remember that, what is she doing? She's fleeing from the Antichrist and she's going to the wilderness. When does that happen? At the midpoint of the tribulation period. When the Antichrist comes and walks into the rebuilt temple and he says, I am God, worship me. And then his anti-Semitism, like Hitler, explodes all over the Jews and they gotta run. And so they run, where do scholars believe they run? Many scholars believe they run to Jordan. Some say the um, rock city of Petra, we don't know for sure, but they run to the wilderness. And so where does Jesus go? Listen, Armageddon is the last great battle in the Valley of Megiddo. There's another battle or battles before then. And so Jesus goes to Jordan where the remnant of Israel is hiding from the forces of the Antichrist. And what does Jesus do? He rolls up his sleeves and he goes to fight for that which he loves, Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, God loves Israel. The nation of Israel. Don't listen to the theologians that say the church is Israel and Israel's the church. It's just all one big God's people and God is done with Israel forever. That's false. That's replacement theology. It has nothing to do with this church at all. God loves the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jews. We love the Jews. God has a plan for them in the future. And when he comes back, he will fight for them. He'll fight for them. Then he's gonna turn toward Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, where he's gonna get even more bloody. Okay, so we're gonna pick it up now in verse 14. I love this verse. I, 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 got so excited yesterday as I saw something I've never seen in verse 14. All right, look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, okay? So there's an army behind Jesus as he's going to the battle, battle of Armageddon. Who makes up the armies of heaven? If you're taking notes, angels and saints. Now, this is so cool, right? Angels, I'll just read it to you. 2 Thessalonians 1, seven and eight. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus. And so angels are behind him, but not just angels. 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. So that he, Jesus, may establish your hearts blameless before God and God and the Father, listen to this, at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. And so it's not just angels coming back with Jesus, it's also the saints. 
Now this is what I never saw before. I've known that for years. Here's what I never saw before until yesterday. Look at verse 14 again. And the armies of heaven arrayed in what? Fine linen, white, and pure were following him on white horses. All right, stop right there. Go back to verse eight. Speaking about the bride who is the church, verse eight, it was granted her to clothe herself with what? There it is. Fine linen, bright and pure. What does that mean? That means if you know Jesus, guess what? You're coming back with him to the earth to the battle of Armageddon. You're gonna be there. Now, are you ready for that? I mean, I mean, come on. You know, people like to plan their future, like their 401k and their retirement. I'm talking about go beyond that into eternity and start to think about what's gonna happen when you have your glorified immortal body. One of the things that's gonna happen is that you're coming back with Jesus behind him as he's coming back down to the Valley of Megiddo. We're there. And some of you are like, I just can't wrap my mind around this. Okay, I'm gonna be on my white horse and I'm gonna look over at you and I'm gonna say, I told you. <laughs> I try to tell you, man, every Sunday. You're just like sitting there like. It's not a fairy tale. These true words of God. We're there. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not there to fight with him during the battle. We're there to follow him down to reign with him after the battle. We don't have to fight. He's got the word of God coming out of his mouth. Isn't that what it says now in verse 15? From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. What's the sharp sword symbolic of? The word of God. And he will rule them with a rod of Iron, Psalm chapter two. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So just like a, a vineyard worker in ancient days threw all those grapes down into the winepress and jumped in, took off their shoes and started jumping up and down on the grapes and the grape juice is splattering. So when Jesus Christ comes back, this is why we have children's ministry, when he comes back, he is trampling down on millions of people and Revelation 14, 20 says their blood splatters up to the horse's bridle. It's a bloodbath when he comes back. He's not coming back like a baby in a manger. He's coming back as Lord. And some people are appalled by Revelation 19 and they think, what are you good church people doing reading this stuff? Who does, this person think he is coming down and trampling on human precious life. You know who he is? It says in the next verse, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. Shout it out. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now say it like you mean it, go ahead. King of kings and Lord of lords. He has every right. Every right. He's, he's gonna come. You, got, you guys really think that evil, wickedness is just gonna go on forever? Nope, there will be justice. And then, verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, 
And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. So, you know, we as saints, we're called to the marriage supper of the Lamb where we're rejoicing. These birds are called to the great supper of God. Why, verse 18, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, there's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with the armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. Okay, now, let's stop right there. Please look at me. Um, if I'm a soldier in the Valley of Megiddo and I've got you know, my, my, my weapon and I look up and I see Jesus coming back with the army of heaven, I'm gonna drop my weapon and get on my knees and say, I repent, right? But did you know that's not what they're gonna do? You'd think they would repent. No, 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 what they're gonna do is turn the nukes towards Jesus. Ready, aim, fire. And you really think it's gonna bother the Lord? No, it's not gonna bother him at all because he's king of kings and he's Lord of Lords. And so now in verse 20, what happened to the Antichrist? Well, like a coward, he's running. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in his presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the what? Okay, this is the first two people ever thrown ever into the lake of fire right here in our Bibles. I'll explain that when I explain the two resurrections in chapter 20, but the lake of fire right now is empty, it's not hell. And so these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest, that's those who somehow survived Armageddon, they were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with its flesh. And so it's not gonna end well for the enemies of Christ. And so I want you guys, please, to stay with me all the way to the end here, okay? And I want you to think through this last thought. For the life of me, I cannot understand why anyone would turn down the proposal of Jesus Christ. For the life of me, I don't understand why anyone would turn down a proposal, come to me, commit your life to me. And yet, don't you know, most of the world lies in darkness this afternoon. Now, think about this. He came from heaven. God took on human flesh. He did not have to do that. He could have said, forget them, if that's their attitude, just destroy them but he came to seek and save those who are lost. And what did he do during his three and a half year ministry? He gave sight to blind people, the ability to hear to deaf people, the ability to walk to cripples, he cleansed lepers, 
He healed sick people. He encouraged the heart of the, of, of the brokenhearted. And, not, and that, that wasn't enough. Here's the real reason he came. As the God-man, he hung on a cross and he took the wrath of the Father against all of our sins. He took it in his body. So we would never have to worry about the wrath of God. That's our Jesus. He took God's wrath in his body. He died in our place so we wouldn't have to die and go to hell. And three days later, he gets up and walks out of the tomb victorious over sin and death. And now, here, here's what he says. He says, come to me. It's a wedding proposal. And, and here, here's what I know. Some of you have never submitted to Jesus as the Lord of your life. You've never committed your life to Jesus. That's some of you. I would say probably a larger group of you right now you committed your life to Christ years ago, but for whatever reason, you're not walking with him right now. You're not living for him. And so whether you're in the first group or the second group, listen to Jesus' proposal. He's saying, come to me. What does that mean? That means, just like in a wedding, as a bride, you gotta walk down the aisle and say yes to Jesus. Don't just say a little prayer like a poem and think you got fire insurance. No, commit or recommit your life to Jesus. That's the last point. It's the question for you. Will you commit yourself to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ? And so I don't do this every service, but I want to now. I wanna invite you to come, those of you who need to, to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Or recommit if you're not living for him right now. You might say publicly, Pastor, in front of all these people, um, when, when, when people get married, do they do it privately or publicly? Jesus died for you publicly. He's not embarrassed about loving you. Why would, why would you be embarrassed about loving him? And so I'm gonna ask you, as hard as it might be in front of these people who, by the way, love you and will encourage you, if you need to commit your life to Jesus or recommit your life to Jesus, to just stand up, go to the aisle, and just like a wedding, come on down to the front where Jesus is waiting with open arms. Just come, whoever you are, just come. Just come, don't be embarrassed, come to him. If you're, if you're in the middle of the aisle and you got all like 20 people that way and 20 people that way, that's okay, guess what? Everybody can just scoot back and let you come. It's not an inconvenience. Whoever you are, just come. And church family, let's really encourage these people as they come to the Lord or come back to the Lord. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And I just wanna say, sir, I thank God for you as a man leading by example coming up here in front of all these people. That takes courage, I, I encourage you for that. Encourage you for that. Because here's why, nothing against the women, but guys, we need more spiritual leaders to get out of their seat and come up here and commit your life to Jesus Christ. No more casual Christian, committed Christian. That's, that's the 
the plea here. And we're gonna wait here as people continue to come. God bless you guys. God bless you guys. People be praying because some people right now are like, I don't know if I should or not. Just be praying that they would have the courage to come and commit or recommit their lives to Christ. I'm just gonna wait here for 30 more seconds and then we'll continue on with the wedding ceremony, so to speak. Anyone else would like to come? Amen, God bless you. God bless you. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. He'll never lie to you. He'll never deceive you. He'll be faithful through this life, through eternity. And he'll save you by his power, cleansing you of all your sins. What a savior. And so we're grateful for those of you who came today. And I don't, I don't know you guys personally. I don't know if you're coming for the first time or recommitting um, your life to Jesus Christ. But what we'll do in the, in the prayer is we'll take care of both of those in the prayer. Now, you guys heard me preach it. It's not a poem for fire insurance. This is you committing to Jesus. And so from your heart to him, as we all bow our heads, please now for prayer, from your heart to him, just say something like this. Dear Lord, I am sorry for going my own way. I need you. I need forgiveness. I know I can't work my way to you. Freely I come. Committing myself to you. You're so wonderful and faithful. So please forgive all my sins. Come and live in my heart and carry me home. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. You guys could look at me. And I, and I, I know the tears because it's real and he's real. And the beautiful thing about him as a faithful groom is man, he shows up in such a wonderful way in our lives as we do life with him, where he promises, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's a promise from him straight to you as his wonderful bride. And so don't ever let go of that promise. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Salvation is totally his deal where he's saving you you're just committing your life to him. And so, church family, can we encourage these who committed their life to Christ today? Awesome. 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 And so, what we're gonna do, yeah, so Pastor Bob come up, prayer partners come up. I want every prayer partner to come up and just grab one of these people, men with men, hopefully women with women, and um, just put your arm around them, pray with them as I close in prayer today. We're gonna give you guys all free Bibles as well. Um, 
and just we, we want to be there as the church for you as you grow in your relationship with you. I know, I know some of you are um, making that commitment to church here at Calvary. I thank God for that. But let's listen, whether it's Calvary or another good Bible teaching church in the community, you got to get plugged into a church with the bride, the corporate bride of Christ, and live uh, for him with them. And so uh, prayer partners are here. I'm gonna close in prayer. And then um, the prayer partners also and myself will be available to minister to anyone who needs ministry after the service. And so Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for being such a great savior. We extol you, Jesus. And Lord, we wanna see uh, these people who've committed or recommitted their lives today, we wanna see them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We wanna see them be conformed into your image. And we wanna see them um, in the future uh, to be discipling and teaching others. And so we know, Lord, you have a wonderful plan for their lives. I pray you'll help them to walk with you all the way through to the end. And Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for their love that they have for you, their hunger for your word. I pray, Father, that you'll just make that hunger stronger and that thirst for your presence deeper, knowing that you and you alone can satisfy that inner longing that we have for you, the bridegroom, Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. And we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm New Here, then Knowing Christ.